Hey there, here's a quick note. This podcast contains general financial advice only. That means it's not specific to you, your needs, goals, or objectives. So don't act on the information until you've spoken with your financial advisor. You'll find our full disclosure, disclaimer, and link to our financial services guide in the show notes. Brad, thanks for taking some time to join me on the show, mate. Thank you very much for having me, Owen. Yeah, it's great. We don't often get to talk about credit. We don't often get to talk about the bond market, even though it is such an important part of kind of the, the investment menu. Um, we tend to talk a lot about, you know, growth assets, risk on assets. I'm hoping today you can really get into the nitty gritty of like what it means to be a credit analyst, how um, you go about your day, what you look for and how this ecosystem comes together. Um, just reviewing the, the Daintree website, I was able to see you know, a lot of, um, I guess, literature on the strategy and around how value is added, how capital is protected. Um, but there's a lot to cover here. We're going to talk about things like duration, inflation, a lot of terms that may be new to some of our listeners, but also many of our listeners may have heard but need a refresher on. So if you could define them as you go. I thought one of the easiest ways to introduce you was based on something that I heard on a pr previous uh, podcast that you've done which is basically this story of you getting up in front of 150, um, I think it was advisors, and you had one of those sh shocking moments where you can look back on your career and you can think, okay, that happened. Now I've got to, got to turn the corner and just move on. So maybe you can relive that story for us just to, as a way to introduce yourself and a bit of the humility that comes with doing a podcast. <laughs> sure, I can certainly do that. So in a previous life, I uh, worked for a stockbroker. And of course, the morning meeting is a, a key part of the day for a stockbroker. And it was my task to, you know, compile all the information from overnight and convey it to the, uh, to the team each morning. Uh, but often we would have companies come to visit us. So large companies, small companies, and the, and the CEO or, or someone, you know, quite senior in the, in the ranks would come and give the, uh, give the team an update on, on what's been happening. So one morning we had a, a wind energy company uh, come in, that, you know, that they build wind turbines effectively. And the CEO mm -hmm. came in. Um, his name was Miles George and, you know, sort of getting set up and the presentation was ready to go, sort of turned on the microphone and, you know, introduced Miles Davis, the, uh, the, the legendary jazz, uh, jazz musician to the, to the crowd. And I didn't realise it obviously at, at the exact moment, but uh, I remember feeling the uh, CEO's eyes sort of turn to me and sort of, you know, burn through my, burn through my forehead as I, uh, you know, carried on with my introduction. So, I, uh, I saw a couple of people's faces just sort of have a bit of a smirk. So it was only 10 seconds into it that I realised what I'd done. So you know, afterwards, just sort of tapped him on the shoulder and said, you know, apologies for that. Um, and, you know, I, he didn't seem too fast. And, and we went ahead and the meeting went fine. So it was just, just one of those things that, uh, you know, that, that you do sometimes, Freudian slip or, or whatever you want to call it, but it all worked out in the end. Mm. So a lot of people that listen to this, to this program um, love the equity side of the, the ledger. They love to talk about companies, you know, doing valuations, speaking with management and so on and so forth. Um, I think the, the, one of the unique things about your um, background is, you know, being a credit analyst, you basically, we all basically solve the same problem, but from a different end of the capital stack. And so maybe as we, as we go through this, you might be able to draw some, I guess, similarities and differences, like draw those out for us as we talk about the differences between these kind of two um, fields of investing and analyst work. And maybe you could start by just telling us how you got 
into being a credit analyst and you know how that differs along the way? Sure. Becoming a credit analyst was it's totally by accident. As you know, you've probably heard it, you know, in, in several other you know podcasts and, and sessions that you've done. Uh, I landed in my credit analyst role simply simply by accident, starting off as an equities analyst as I did uh, around the mid 2000s. Uh, I was looking at a whole range of sectors, uh, but then the GFC hit, and I was you know quite young, quite junior, uh, quite eager, and and quite cheap to keep around in terms of you know, my, my cost and my salary. So as as people were sort of leaving around me, and some people were tapped on the shoulder as well ar- around that same time. Uh, one of the things, one of the functions that got sort of left without a home or left without an owner was the, uh, was the fixed income side of things at, at the stockbroker that I was working at. So I inherited that simply as, simply as an accident because it, uh, it was left homeless. And from there, I built my knowledge from, from scratch, uh, starting from what, what your listeners would probably know as the hybrid market, the, uh, the bank hybrid market, and sort of going from there. And uh, it, it just built over a number of years. It gained prominence at the, at the broker itself. And I started to, to really transition 100% into that uh, fixed income credit analyst type of role. Mm. And how does, so So when you were going about this journey, I feel like it for some people it might be more of a, a steep learning curve than say equities. Would that be fair? Or do you think it was like an easier hurdle to overcome? Yeah, it would be for some people. I think one of the key qualities you need in fixed income is a very strong grasp of the quantitative side of things. So there are a lot of equity investors that are very good at not just necessarily uh, passing the numbers, working through the growth rates and the expected growth rates and you know, translating that into a DCF valuation. But there's a lot of equity investors that are very good at you know, feeling the vibe, if, if you will, yeah. talking to being able to talk to management or being able to speak to other people in the industry and get a good gauge of where that particular company sits and what its prospects are. In, in fixed income, it's a little bit different because, like I said, you need a really strong grasp of the quantitative side of things. So you really really need to be good with numbers and being able to understand how bond math works quite quickly and, and almost do it in your head. Um, mm-hmm. But at the same time, you need to have a much greater appreciation of the macro. So a lot of, a lot of the beta in fixed income is very, very similar. So the same thing that affects a government bond can often affect a corporate bond in terms of the, uh, the movement in yield or spread or, or some of those factors. But if you don't have a good grasp of the macro factors going on, and you mentioned one, you know, in, inflation and those sorts of things, then you are going to make mistakes. You are not going to be positioned correctly, and that will end up costing you in performance terms. And when you've got interest rates as low as they are, you don't have a lot of room to move. So if, if you're making mistakes mm-hmm. a lot of the time, you're going to tend to underperform and, and that underperformance starts to become entrenched over time. So it becomes more difficult as you go along to make it back up and catch up with the, with the leaders. And one of the things that I think is important for context here is a lot of the, the work that you do, you know, in equities land, we might say, you know, we're talking about five or 10% returns, expected returns over a certain period of time. But um, when you're talking about capital preservation and risk off assets, we might be dealing with, you know, one to 200 basis points and one to 2% or, or things of that nature. So, uh, you know, the, the margin for error seems to be a lot less. Would that be a fair assumption? That, absolutely. Yeah. One, one way I sort of describe it is when, when you're investing in equities, what you're effectively looking for is, is blue sky. You'd, you'd love to find those equities that are priced really cheap, that have got a great growth trajectory that is translated into a rising share price and, and, and gets re-rated over time such that you can make, you know, 
2x, 3x, and, and sometimes even more, depending on the type of market and the types of securities that you're investing in. When you're looking at fixed income, it's more about avoiding going to the bottom of the deep blue sea. So mm-hmm. uh, in fixed income, your very best outcome is that you get, you get repaid your capital on time and you receive your coupons on time, uh, and that's it. Everything else from there is effectively downside. Mm-hmm. So your mindset has to be a fair bit different, actually, and it goes to what I was saying before. You need to have a grasp of those key factors because, in in many sense, many senses, it's those key factors that uh, that, that drive your success. Mm. So one of the questions I think that probably helps to relate the point from earlier on, which is that it can be sometimes it seems a little bit more abstract for investors because you know, if we want to learn about investing, one of the easiest things you can do is just go and get a brokerage account and start buying shares, right? Where when it comes to fixed income, at least historically, a lot of people didn't have that ability and, and to some extent still don't have the, the ability to access some securities. So uh, maybe just to, to clear the field here, why don't more people invest directly in credit um, as opposed to say equities? Yeah, and I think you've touched on it already. It's, it's an access issue. So in, in the credit market, um, we don't see a particular bond packaged up into $1, $2, $10 units that you can then trade on an exchange. What generally happens is they're parceled up into much larger units. And, and I'm talking $100,000 to $200,000 is the, the, the very minimum trade size that you look at in our, in our market. So for 99% of investors, that really... Uh, excludes them from being able to build any sort of diversified portfolio when it comes to bonds. Because what, what we do know for sure is the diversification is 10 times more important in fixed income than it is in, than it is in equities. So you know, to be able to, to generate a, a really diverse portfolio, you need at least 50, but I'm saying more like 100 type of names uh, to get you to that true level of diversification. So if in the off event that you do have a default, it doesn't impact your performance as, as much as it would if, say, you only hold 20 bonds or you know, 5% at, at 5% each of the portfolio. So that's, uh, that's the main hurdle, stopping more uh, average investors, DIY, SNSF type investors from, from getting into the credit market more broadly. And that's why a lot of investors end up using the like listed products or managed funds directly, right? Because it's easier. You know, you can buy units and it, breaks down that parcel size considerably and you get the diversification, right? Absolutely. Yep, absolutely. And, and you get access to active managers as well. Um, but of course, the flip side of that is that you need to obviously pay someone to do that. So there, there's always going to be that, that element of uh, needing to access someone, be, be it passive or be it active, to, to provide that wrapper within which, you know, uh, great, good quality portfolios can be constructed. Mm. There are a few terms I'm going to ask you to define as we go through this conversation. Um, the, I, I didn't know how to take these in terms of the order of operations, which would best suit this. But I think because it's going to come up a fair bit um, mm-hmm. in your other definitions, is just understanding and explaining to our listeners what you, what, when you talk as a credit analyst, when you talk about duration and you say your long duration or short duration, just explaining that concept as clearly as you can, because I think that then sets the scene for breaking down the industry and going to you know, risk return uh, characteristics and that type of stuff. Yeah, no problem. Uh, at, at its very simplest terms, when I use the term duration, what I'm really saying is 
the sensitivity of a bond's price to a change in interest rates. That, okay. that's, really, that's really all it is. If you're long duration, then you have a higher sensitivity to movements in interest rates, or the bond price has a higher sensitivity to movements in interest rates. If you're short duration or low duration, then you can watch interest rates rise quite considerably and all other things being equal, it won't have a large impact on the price of the bond. So if I, for example, I'm just looking at a, an index fund um, here, Australian fixed, <clears throat> pardon me, Australian fixed interest um, ETF, and it's got something called effective duration of 5.7 years. And so can you explain maybe what that would mean just in the, in the context of that, the sensitivity to interest rates, just to get everyone on the same page? Yeah, absolutely. So at 5.7 years, what, what that's saying is, if let's just say for argument's sake and to keep the, uh, the example simple, the current 10-year Australian bond yield is 2%. Now, what that says is if the Australian 10-year bond yield rises from 2% to 3%, so we saw a 100, 100 basis point movement in the, in the bond yield, and let's just call it overnight for the, for the sake of argument, the mm -hmm. price or the value of that bond fund would drop by 5.7% overnight. Okay. So it, it gives you a, a direct correlation, and then you can, you can then uh, compare that back to uh, you know, individual days movements even, because it will give you a pretty fair guide of what's going to happen. So, for example, if you're sitting there and, and the Australian 10-year government bond yield moves from 2% to 2.1%, that's point, point, uh, 10 basis points. What we're saying is that that's going to drop the value of that fund by 0.57% on that day, all other things being equal. So nothing else changes except that. That's what would happen because that's what the effective duration is telling us. Yeah, yeah, okay. And so in a rising interest rate environment, most bond investors would want to be short duration because there's less sensitivity to interest rate increases. Yes, that's, that's exactly right. So what, what works on the, on, the, on the one side in bond math works exactly the same on the opposite. Okay. Okay. So this is, um, this is a good way to think about just maybe that's just clears the air so we can talk about, you use that phrase going forward duration, just remember the sensitivity if you're listening to this. Um, so how about setting the scene then for our listeners, just in terms of the size, breadth, the, the characteristics of bonds, of credit, of structured products, all that sort of stuff, the way you would break that down and the way you would explain it to an investor that may be new to the industry, if you're their field guide, how would you explain the composition of the, the market? And maybe if you can give that some sort of relative sense to equities, that would be great. Okay. So the, the way that's worked best for me, and, I, and I've used this example a few times, both, uh, both in person and, and verbally. And the first, the first one I'd say is to, to look at the equity market as a tennis ball. So you know, think of a tennis ball, fits pretty easily in the average person's hand. Uh, but when you think about the bond market in all of its guises, then you need to think about a basketball. So when you, when you look at uh, holding a basketball next to a, uh, a tennis ball, that's the comparison of bond market to equity market. Now, to take that one step further, the, uh, the notional value of all derivatives markets, of which fixed income is a large player in, but not the exclusive player in, then we're talking about a beach ball versus a basketball versus a tennis ball. So right. it's, it's large in context to equity markets, but the notional value of derivatives is still much larger than that. So it's, it's, it's a very big world that we're talking about um, for context. 
And, and very simply, you can break it down into probably three categories. The first is corporate. So when I say corporate, that, that's any manner of company. So that might be a bank, that might be a supermarket, it might be an electrical utility, it might be an energy company. So anything within that corporate space that want to borrow money via the bond market would fall into the first bucket, which is, which is corporate bonds or, or, or credit. I'll mm -hmm. refer to them in, in either way. The second is, is governments. Uh, we also might call them sovereigns from time to time, but the government, government borrowing market. So the government itself going out and, and borrowing money from, from private investors, uh, that's generally its own category uh, because some of, the, uh, some of the countries like to borrow a fair bit. So they, they have their own category to themselves. Uh, and then thirdly, it's a very broad category, but it's the structured market. So in, in structured, what we're talking about is things like uh, residential mortgage-backed security, which is effectively a security that bundles up hundreds and hundreds or even thousands of individual mortgages into a specific security that then gets sliced up into different slices and different investors can buy the different slices based on their risk tolerance. And that is true, that can happen for, for bank loans and what's called collateralized loan obligations. Um, back, in the, back in the GFC, what caused a lot of the problems were what's called collateralized debt obligations, which were uh, uh, very unique types of structured securities that got you know, turned into sort of Frankenstein's, um, Frankenstein's mm. monster in, in the end of it and, and ended up, as I said, uh, you know, being a large cause of the GFC. Uh, and then there are other types of structured instruments as well around, uh, around you know, quite niche parts of the, of the debt market, but they all fall under that structured category. So that, that's really it in a nutshell in terms of the, uh, the addressable market that we can talk about. So there's probably markets within markets here. We've got, you know, within structured products, I think people will remember the CDOs from the, the Big Short or from the GFC. Um, just quickly reflecting on this now, um, the CDOs, what would, what would be the, say, the difference between CDOs and say mortgage-backed securities, generally speaking? So a residential mortgage-backed security is a very simple structure. As I was talking about earlier, it's a lot of mortgages, sometimes even into the thousands of, of very similar mortgages, all packaged together and uh, cut into tranches that investors then buy. Uh, it's very easy to understand. Uh, and the, uh, the disclosures in Australia especially are really good. So us as investors can really get a great idea of what we're getting into when we buy a particular mortgage-backed security. When we start to look at collateralized debt obligations though, what we're seeing is a lot more opaque information. So it's generally banks packaging up a lot of loans that they have on their, on their books. Uh, but again, going through the same process, when you package enough of the loans together, what the uh, ratings agencies, so the Standard and Poor's or the Moody's who generally provide the ratings for these particular securities, what they say is if you, if you put enough of them together, then you get those benefits of diversification and they're willing to add those different ratings onto those securities. But the main difference is really transparency and disclosure. And even for institutional investors like us, it can be very difficult to understand exactly what you're buying in the CDO. Uh, but when you contrast that with a mortgage-backed security, you can look at detail down to the level of, of postcodes. So you know how much exposure you have to you know, Peakhurst versus George's Hall. Uh, that, that's a Sydney example, but you can do that for any necessary postcode in the, in the country. So it's, it's, it's about transparency and disclosure. 
Mm. So when we think about the, and this is one more question on the size and the kind of layout of the market. When we think about the size of the market in these three buckets, um, would the governments and, and sovereigns part of the market, would that be the, the larger kind of pool for, for bond and bond investors? Um, generally speaking, like for fixed income investors, would that be the one that dominates the market? Like how big are these, these, these markets? Yeah, it's, the, the discrepancy isn't as large as you might think. Um, generally, governments have got the, uh, the, the benefit of being able to print the currency on which they actually issue the bonds mm. that they offer. So sort of by definition of that, and the fact that they have the right to tax their citizens, they generally have access to a lot more uh, you know, funding to pay these bonds back and, and, and other measures as well. So just by definition of that, and because they're sort of large uh, institutions in the first place, they, they, they tend to dominate the market. But the, the, the discrepancy isn't as much as you might think. Um, the structured market is quite large overall. So in, in the United States, especially, the way they fund mortgages is, is quite different. So they, uh, the bank, for example, will originate a lot of mortgages uh, and then they'll go and uh, knock on the door of uh, companies such as Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac, which some mm. of your more experienced investors might remember, again, from times in the GFC. But effectively what they are is that they're very large insurers of mortgages. So they, they buy those mortgages off the banks, package them up into specific securities and then um, you know, centralise that process as opposed to the banks having to do it themselves. And that, that, that's a valuable service for the banks because it's, it makes it cheaper for them to issue mortgages uh, and it makes it easier for the investors like us as well because it's, the issuer is very well known and the, uh, the documentation is standardised so it's, it's really easy to work through the detail of individual issues. Mm. Um, the, the GFC was one occasion where people were obviously completely petrified of anything to do with like structured products. Um, like the, the scars were pretty deep there. Uh, the, the other thing that, you know, has come up recently and the reason why I asked about the shakeout of the industry is like the kind of the low interest rate environment, quantitative easing, it's on the tips of the tongues of most investors. In fact, a lot of investors that really don't know much at all about bond markets seem to have an opinion on quantitative easing. And the other thing that we saw, I think this was maybe going back a couple of years, we saw what's known as an inverted yield curve. So I'm hoping, and there was this whole thing, like the media was making a meal of this. Can you explain maybe two things, what the inverted, what a yield curve should look like, like what it is, what it represents and why the inverted yield curve was for some reason, such a big issue for a lot of investors? Mm -hmm. So when we talk about yield curves, we're looking at a plot of the different yields for different terms of, of government bonds or, or corporate bonds. So in, in general, government bond yield curves are a lot more closely watched than the corporate ones. Uh, and really what everyone's trying to do when they're constructing a yield curve is, is think about re really two things. One, where do they see inflation sitting in the, in the term to which they're trying to uh, build the curve, be it two years, five years, 10 years, or whatever. And the second question is, how much premium do I need to be offered to lend my money to the government for 10 years as opposed to two years? And that, that's known as term premium. So when you boil it down, a yield curve is just everyone in the market's reflection of what they believe future inflation will be, as well as how much extra premium they need to own a longer dated bond versus a shorter dated bond. Okay, so just to just to jump in here, Brad. So basically, when you the longer you lend to the to the government, 
um, are you saying like the longer you lend, the more the risk? So therefore, you, you demand a bit more of a premium. Is that right? Uh, well, not necessarily. There is additional risk. There, there is there is more risk that the government can default in ten year, over a period of ten years than they can over a period of two years. But interestingly, that's that's not always the case in corporate land. So that's that's probably a bit of a side discussion. But okay. generally generally speaking, you, you give a company money for longer, that money is going to be locked up for a longer period. Therefore, the opportunity costs of giving it to the uh, giving it to the borrower for ten years is higher and, and you need to decide what that right level is so you can you can you can look at a yield and say it's offering me you know two percent but I, I wouldn't lend to them until it gets to three yeah. percent some people would say i'm happy to lend to them at 1.5 percent. so if i can get two percent today i'm very happy to to invest and if, if the yield drops a little bit more maybe I'll, I, can, I can still invest some more so that's that's largely what it is it's just a huge market everyone putting their views out there listening to all the uh, information, watching all the data, making their decisions, and the result is a yield curve. How about then when it goes inverted? What, what would be the risk associated with inverted yield curves? Uh, well, it's not so much a risk. It's, it's more about what is the message that it's signaling. Uh, gen generally speaking, if you've got a flat yield curve, then the market's saying, well, I, I'm, I'm not necessarily asking for any additional term premium uh, to hold for longer periods versus shorter periods. And if it's flat, then they're saying that there's, there's no real inflation problem coming in, in, in the future. But, if, but, but for putting all that aside, what it really means is the market taking the view that the economic cycle is coming to an end, effectively. Uh, and what we know is a lot of the times, economic cycles don't just necessarily uh, wither out and peter out of their own accord. Uh, you know, there's the old saying that economic cycles don't don't end; they're usually killed by the Fed. <laughs> so, really, really, what an inverted yield curve or what a, a flat yield curve is saying is that the market's expecting that the Fed's going to move interest rates at the short end sooner rather than later, um, but they don't have confidence that the economic growth outlook will improve. In fact, it'll probably deteriorate because, as we know, as interest rates go up, the cost of capital goes up. Um, companies probably don't invest in the same amount of projects as they do, and it generally tends to constrain growth over time. So that, that's why everyone worries about an inverted yield curve, mm. uh, generally speaking. And it's, it's probably an opportune time that you ask that question as well, because we're actually seeing yield curves starting to flatten quite considerably right now, so to, you know, towards the end of 2021. Uh, and I think that's the, uh, the confluence of those two factors that I, that I mentioned earlier. It's, it's quite a typical inversion process if you like. Um, so what's happening is, uh, so that there's, there's a growing expectation that the Fed is going to increase its taper. So they're gonna step back from QE a lot quicker than the market was hoping. And they're gonna to start to raise interest rates faster than expected as well. Mm -hmm. And the confluence of those two factors um, uh, means that the market is worried that the growth picture is going to deteriorate fairly quickly. Uh, and that's why we're starting to see a relatively flat curve start to appear again as well. So it's, it's a really interesting time at the moment because those two factors are, are very much jutting up against each other. Mm. We'll get to um, basically how you think about inflation rising and if interest rates come back, what does that mean? But one of the ways that investors get exposure to, to bonds and to fixed income generally is through 
listed products like um, index funds and and ETFs and, and that sort of thing. Um, how how do you kind of draw a bow between the the differences, or how do you like think about the differences between equity index funds and what the passive funds provide versus in fixed income? Like, what are the key differences there? I know of a couple of key differences, but I'm just hoping you can expound on that. Yeah. When it comes to uh, yeah, passive investing in fixed income, uh, it really has two major drawdowns, uh, two major drawbacks. The first is they use the same index methodology as they do for equities. Now, in equities, they use what's called a market cap weighted index. So the, the winners um, grow in size and grab a larger part of the index by, by definition. It, it, and it almost feeds on itself. But to use the same logic in fixed income, what you're ultimately doing is lending more and more money to the most indebted borrowers. So if you're looking at a sovereign bond index fund, what you're effectively doing is lending a lot of money to Japan a lot of money to Italy, uh, a lot of money to some of the other peripheral nations of Europe, uh, and increasingly you're lending money to the US. So you might say, yeah, well, the, the US is probably an okay credit. I'm, I'm happy to, uh, to stomach that. But not as many people understand that uh, Japanese debt as a percentage of GDP is nearly three times the size of the economy. And you know, they, they've, they've borrowed and, and they've borrowed and borrowed for, for decades now. Um, and it's caused this you know, huge stagnation in the, in the Japanese economy because there's so much debt that the government needs to pay interest on that they barely have any money left over to actually you know, fund the operations of government or, or to spend it on, on their citizens, be it on health or education or all of those things that are you know, pretty staple expenditures of the government. So uh, go, going back to the index fund uh, example, what you're doing is you're just lending increasing amounts of money to those, those, uh, those investors. Or those borrowers, and that's probably not a great strategy over time. You just did explain what you mean by stagflation. Stagflation is the mixture of stagnating economic growth and high inflation. So, for the average man on the street, what it would mean is they would probably still have a job, but uh, each year they wouldn't get a pay rise. But every uh, every couple of months, they'd go to the supermarket, and all of their basics of uh, basics of food and, uh, and toiletries and all of those sorts of things, the prices will be moving by, you know, five, 10% per annum. So they'd still, they'd still have a job, they'd still be working, but their pay rises would go nowhere near paying for the increase in um, the, the, the cost, of, cost of life. And that starts to feed on itself because then people start to rally in the street pushing for higher pay rises, which means company profits drop and or prices have to rise even further to fund those pay rises, and it all becomes a, a spiral. So stagflation is probably the worst of all worlds because it creates those spirals that are very hard to get out of once they start. How does a company like a country like Japan end up in that? Oh, well, the, Japan's a unique situation in that they're, that they're quite insular. So they, they sort of turn into themselves a fair bit. Uh, so what generally happens is the Japanese government does have a lot of borrowing, so their debt to GDP is very high, but Japanese households are extremely good savers. So generally speaking, it's Japanese households uh, that, that, that earn money in yen and save in yen that are lending to the uh, Japanese government in yen. So it all effectively stays in the one system, believe it or not. And uh, it's, it's, it's kept them going. Like they've, 
They've continued to generate some economic growth over the last 20 to 30 years, but it's been very anemic and it's been stop and start and the, the amount of uh, stimulus still going into the Japanese economy via you know, quantitative easing and uh, managing the yield on the 10-year bond to within 10 basis points of zero is you know, quite a unique strategy, but it's, and it's quite drastic, but they, they've had to do it because uh, they can't let those borrowing costs get too far away from them. Otherwise, the, the interest costs just absolutely uh, uh, throttle their entire government. Just on this, um, this is an interesting kind of di digression, but and it's not necessarily related to Japan. Is the the key risk that a lot of people see is with so much central bank debt um, around the world, is that maybe somehow we can kind of inflate our way out of the debt, so the we can basically reduce the size of that debt because I'm guessing that we you know we generate more GDP or something to that extent. Can you explain that? theory for me i don't know if you've come across it but it's something that i've heard in a few discussions lately and just hoping to get more clarity on it yeah so as i as i, as I mentioned earlier you know, governments are in the sort of the fairly privileged um spot of being able to print the currency in which they borrow in so if worse does come to worst they can they can literally decide to just print more of the of that currency to to, to pay their debts um, but if you ask someone in Venezuela or, or Zimbabwe how their quality of life is at the moment, I think they would be uh, they would be fairly disgruntled because those two governments effectively tried that, you know, even even in the last ten to fifteen years, and it's led to led to economic ruin, all other things being equal, because you simply can't print money out of nowhere, you can't create something out of nothing, and then use that to to, to pay a debt. All it does is you know create unhealthy types of inflation. That, as I said, start to become a spiral, and then it's it's very hard to get out of, and you know you end up in the absurd situation of you know Zimbabwe paint, uh, printing trillion dollar notes, for example, but no one uses them because they're worthless. So the, uh, the so but but there is a more sort of nuanced way to 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 do it, and and it involves getting growth in the economy to a level that effectively funds the payment of interest on the, on that debt. And, and then some. So there's, there's a concept of the, the headline deficit. So, uh, you know, Italy, for example, might have a deficit of 3% of, of GDP, for example. But if they can get nominal growth in the economy above 3% of GDP, then there is a way that they can effectively, very slowly, but grow themselves out of debt. It would take a long time, but it, it, would, it would be called, you know, generating a primary surplus. So a, a surplus on the government account before interest payments. So it, it can be done, but it takes a lot of factors coming together and a lot of things coming together for it to work. And I'm not aware of any real instances where it's been able to be achieved over very long time periods. They've been able to do it over short time periods, but realistically, after a while, they need to go back to the old, uh, old playbook of austerity, which in other words means cutting government expenses to... To, to, to rein in their costs to ensure that they can start to pay back that debt. And, and politically, that's always unpopular. So there's mm. always a limit to which they can do that before it starts to become a great on the, on the current government and you know, people start to get restless and look for, look for, look for better ideas or the, the magic money printer or, or, or whatever else comes along. So it's mm. uh, that high debt levels uh, always cause problems. And it's, it's one of those things when we think about inflation that 
uh, I think a lot of people are focusing a lot on supply chain issues at the moment. You know, if you've tried to get anything from, you know, Amazon overseas, get it into Australia before Christmas, you're sort of tearing your hair out, hoping that it's going to make it in time. And I think for many people, they probably won't this year. So there's a lot of focus on that at the moment and what that could mean for inflation in the next one or two years, uh, you know, supply chain disruptions and, and the like. But I think longer term, we need to realise that there are these other factors under the surface. Uh, one of those being the high level of, of debt already within the system, be it households, government or corporates, uh, as a factor that will balance out that inflation over time, because that having that high level of debt is, is deflationary in itself. Mm. And I think this is the thing, right? A lot of the, the, not just here in Australia, but around the world, a lot of the citizens are concerned. They hear these headlines in the news of this much debt, this much money printing. And it, it, it's pretty overwhelming, but it's also quite complicated trying to wrap your head around all this because then you think, okay, I've hit, I, I can't hear, I can't really take in the theories because I don't really understand what the actual problem is and how it kind of came to be in the first place. So, um, and then, yeah, I mean, we've seen austerity um, uh, 2014, 2015 in Europe and how that caused a lot of civil unrest as well. Um, and you're right, there's always two sides to government, right? So one always sounds a bit more appealing to the people than the other side that's trying to pursue austerity. Um, if we can dive back in now to basically what you do as a credit analyst, and I think this is kind of fascinating, is the difference between, you know, active and passive management. So we just talked about passive in equities land, typically, if you invest in an index fund, you're playing on the idea that winners keep winning. You, you know that that there's that kind of that idea that maybe five percent of companies generate all of the alpha in the stock market over the long term, and because of a market cap weighted index, those companies are getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Which means inside of the index fund, they're getting bigger and bigger and bigger. So a classic example would be Apple. In the last say five years, it's gone from one trillion dollar market cap to almost three trillion dollars at the time of recording. So if you invested in the S and P five hundred or the Dow you've kind of benefited from that company keep keeping on winning. Um, at least I have, because I own shares in it as well, full disclosure. Um, well done. Well done. <laughs> thank you. Um, but in debt markets, we've obviously got that issue, like you said, with, you know, we're rewarding companies with more debt, which is not necessarily, it's kind of like the opposite um, of what you kind of think intuitively that you want. So therefore, like an active approach to credit, to st structured debt, to, um, even maybe you know governments um, in in the in the fixed income market. How do you go about doing that at Daintree? Like, how do you, as a team, as an individual, how do you go about filtering bonds, and how do you go about building a portfolio? Let's just dive straight into that. Yeah, sure. So at, at Daintree, I'm the uh, financials analyst. So I look at banks and fun and financials generally, generally some of the insurers uh, around the world. So when when we do that. We can, we can see hundreds and hundreds of banks out there. And it could be a little bit daunting. Like where, where do you actually start? So the approach that we took was we said, okay, we, we understand the Australian market. We know how that works. It's an oligopoly. So there's four majors. And then there's a, mm. a, a second tier underneath of, of regional banks and some, some neo banks some fintechs, a whole bunch of competitors that are all really trying to, uh, you know, eat some of the bank's lunch. Uh, and we've got a really strong regulator that sits over the top in, in APRA. So we said, all right, this, this really works here in Australia. Let's go and see if we can find some other countries around the world where some of those characteristics also show through because it, it's reasonable to assume that if those characteristics are in place, you would have a vibrant banking system and then you'd have uh, you know, some great banks to invest in 
uh, alongside the Australian names. So we did that and we've identified about 10 or 11 markets around the world that sort of suit that criteria. So in North America, it's obviously the United States, but also Canada. Canada is extremely similar to Australia in, uh, in, in, many, right. in many ways. Uh, and then we've done some, you know, done some work in Europe and one or two countries in Asia as well. So now we've got a, a relatively more manageable universe and we start to whittle down, okay, what are, the, what are the best banks or what we think are the best banks in those particular markets? And at Daintree, we've whittled it down to about 40 odd names uh, overall that, we, that, that, that I cover that meet all the criteria that, that, uh, that, that pass, our, uh, pass our filters. So then, then from there, we look through the capital stack and we work out which part of the stack works for our particular funds and the, and the strategies that we're trying to run. So at Daintree, we've got uh, three funds. The first is a core income fund, which is our most safe option. So generally speaking, we go further up the capital structure. We're looking for lots of protection, uh, high credit ratings, um, and really simple, simple terms. So we, we don't want 150 page uh, term sheets. We want very simple term sheets. So we know exactly where we sit, how, how we're protected, when we, when we get paid our coupons and the like. Uh, in our high income fund, we go down the capital structure, we look at subordinated notes and uh, tier one or hybrid securities. So they're, they're used as what's called capital instruments. And they're, they're basically just buffers of equity that the banks can dip into if they really hit uh, a, 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 bad, a bad patch and need, need equity quickly. But, they, but they, they return sometimes, you know, four or five times as much as the senior bonds from that same issuer. So what you give up in terms of security, you obviously get compensated for in higher returns. And then in our third fund, uh, hybrid opportunities fund, fairly self-explanatory as to the assets we invest in there, but we give ourselves a little bit more latitude to look at you know, uh, hybrid securities that are listed on exchanges, ones that are traded over the counter, or you know, generally what we do in, uh, in fixed income. Uh, and, and then some other ideas as well. So it gives us just a little bit more latitude to really explore the hybrid space in, in as much detail as possible. I'm just going to follow up on a couple of things you said there. The first one was term sheet. Um, can you explain by what you mean by that? Another word for a PDS. Um, you, 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 might, you might know what a PDS is for an IPO. Uh, each individual bond has a, has a term sheet or, or an information memorandum. It's really just all the details that you need to understand uh, for investing in that particular bond. A lot of the language is standard. It, does, it, does, it has been standardised a lot over time, um, but you do need to know some of the specifics and, and read those documents first before just, before just diving in. I think this is what puts a lot of people off uh, hybrids individually because they're sometimes like 100 pages, 150 pages, and you look at it and you think, I don't have the skill set to read this. Um, but then... I guess if if you do if you, you're seeing them every day and a lot of it's similar to familiar to you, it's a bit easier to kind of get that pattern recognition going and find out what's important, right? Definitely, definitely. And while while different securities can have very specific terms, we've we've been able to categorize them into about three or four main main categories of of of, of terms. So that that's what I do for a day job. But for the average investor that's trying to think about their equity portfolio and, and hybrids over here and maybe some property and real estate and REITs and, and everything, you're right. You, it, it's very difficult to sit down and read through a 100-page document and, and you know, try and understand what's different from that one versus one that you saw three months ago. So mm. it's, it's one of the things that we talk about with our, uh, you know, 
potential clients and the like is that we we take on some of that and we obviously uh we shoulder that burden because we do it every day and we can mm. we can definitely do the work a lot more efficiently than than, than that individual investor it's actually interesting because I, I speak to a lot of debt investors and a lot of you know corporate banking type in, um and private banking type um investors and they they talk to me about the one of the benefits of working on the credit side of things is that you get to see the risk first rather than the upside. So that's that deep blue rather than the blue sky, if you like, to come back to your your answer before. Um, how do you know, say if you use an Australian example or global example, whatever, how do you know what is a good bank from a capital stack perspective? Like in that initial filter you guys are running to identify those 40 banks, what are some of the things that go into that to say, okay, this has got you know, this is not over leveraged. This one's got, you know, it's a high quality bank for X, Y, and Z reasons. Just to give some context around, I think that's really, that'd be really insightful. Yeah. So we're, we're, so looking at banks specifically, they're, they're quite unique creatures and that they are mm. very, uh, they're, very, they're very actually highly leveraged institutions. So they're, they're leveraged many, many times over on the amount of equity that they, that they hold or the shareholder equity that they are uh, entrusted with. So they're, they're very unique institutions. So for me as an analyst, what do I look at? I look at the, the liquidity, how much liquid assets do they hold relative to loan assets? So a bank's business is lending money to people to buy houses, cars, uh, other businesses and the like. But those loans are obviously long-term commitments. So to balance that off, they generally hold very uh, liquid assets like cash and and short-term government securities, short-term government bonds, uh, to, ba to balance that out, to ensure that if you wanted to go to the, the ATM and draw some money out, that they have some of those liquid assets available and it's not all tied up in, in loans. So there's a whole range of numbers you can look at to assess their, their access to that liquidity, and then you can compare that against their local peers, international peers, and, and the like. Um, also, it's, it's good to see a, a really long track record of, of good performance. What you don't want to see from a bank is a year uh, is one that has really really good years some years where they just sort of you know swing for the fences and, and have a great year, uh, but then they start lending to the wrong crowd and and the losses start to go up, and it becomes unpredictable as to whether they're going to have a good year or a bad year, whether they're letting their standards slide just to get their numbers up in the short term. Hmm. And this this is a really good example because in Singapore, what we found is some of the the, the three banks in Singapore that we invest in are the absolute masters of consistency. You, you would never accuse any of the Singaporean banks of being too exciting because they, they simply don't allow it. Their business is so boring, so consistent and so reliable that they have some of the lowest, lowest yields, tightest uh, credit spreads in the world because that is what they actually promised their investors that we're not going to, we're not going to surprise you one bit. They, they grow very slowly but they grow positively pretty much every year. So that they looked at, they watched the GFC from the outside and really you, you can't see any impact to their balance sheet at all from the GFC because they're so prudently uh, allocated to liquidity and, and all of those things that they, they, they barely didn't even see it happen. And the same, the same was true for uh, the, the pandemic as well. They were just so uh, cautious and so um, uh, you know, safe in what they do that they're, you know, they're alive, like a metronome. Hmm. So, so they're, they're sort of the gold standard for predictability and, and having that track record 
to fall back on and know that you can know that you can trust them as an investor. Uh, and then, then, we, then we just look at things like yes, specific market sectors as well. So in Australia, as, as you know, the major banks are, are huge in mortgage lending because Australians love property. In the United States, the major banks don't really do too much residential lending at all. Uh, they do a lot of lending to, to big corporates. So what we, what we note is that while the uh, Australian banks are actually a lot more sensitive to residential property market cycles, the American banks are much more sensitive to broader economic cycles. So we need, we need, we, 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 we need to be aware of that when we're doing our work as well. You, you warned me before we uh, started recording that the, the, the answer to this next question could go a bit deep. So for all those listeners that uh, um, get a bit lost with this next bit, we're going to try and explain the terms as we go. I think you might even lose me. So, but I want to go there. I want to, I want to talk about this. So when I was doing some, digging on on you and Daintree, I was trying to get to the bottom of kind of the various strategies that are employed across the business and how you seek to add alpha. So how do you add the outperformance? And um, I know that there's like the core strategy that you follow and then you have, you know, certain overlays to basically extract value as well. And I'm hoping you can walk us through these. And so you, you're probably going to have to define some of the terms as we go. For those of you that have fixed income experience or have been in um, fund manager research, you'll probably be familiar with these terms. But Brad, I'm just going to throw it over to you. Can you explain how like the core drivers of value creation and an active uh, investor like, you, like yourselves at Daintree kind of yeah. comes together? Yeah, happy to. So when, when we say our core strategy, that, that's buying good quality assets that are index unaware, but that, that are going to generate income for us. So the, the large, largest part of our return is always going to be coupon income. So very, very basic, but we're deciding which securities come into the portfolio. We don't look at any index. It has to pass our criteria before we invest. And if that changes, we can kick it out to 0% weighting uh, as quick as it came in. So that, that's the core part. But once our portfolio is constructed, we know that it's going to be uh, you know, open to the whims of the market. So credit spreads are going to change, interest rates are going to change, and you know, market, uh, market factors are going to impact the, uh, the portfolio. So we, we bring in what's called our overlay and we, we use it to do two things simultaneously. The first is to manage risk, but the second one is to generate additional return by taking views on, on different markets in the fixed income space with the view to generating small but repeatable profits over time. So to give you an example of risk management, what we actually do in, in the portfolio is, is put some put options in, a very small amount, very uh, tightly defined, but we use put options for those periods where perhaps we see like a really sharp risk off scenario, like a March 2020. And as you know, the convexity of options is really high, especially in those, those high beta moves. So we have, we have always got a little bit of a tail hedge sitting there to protect against those really uh, unforeseen black swan type of type of moments. Do you but pay away of, a lot for that? Sorry, Do, when you when no, you put that very in? very tight very tight budget. So uh, it, less than ten basis points per annum in terms oh, wow. of okay. overall fund value. So our, uh, our our team have got a lot of experience in doing doing those sorts of options, and it's not always exchange traded options either. It's it's sometimes a, a very bespoke structure that we will go to a. Uh, an investment bank can get get done based on our specific criteria to ensure that we've got the protection that we want 
at a price that's acceptable to us and it doesn't eat into the returns of our investors. So that's, so, so that's always sort of there ticking along in the background, so to speak. But we also take active positions in, in markets all the time. So one, one example is uh, we would take a spread position um, betting on a bear steepener. So I'll, I'll break that down. So a spread mm. is taking a, a long and a short position in different securities of different tenants. So we would use futures, for example. So we would use a three-year bond future and a 10-year bond future. And we're going to say that the, uh, the curve is going to bear steepen. So it's going to get steeper and it's going to get steeper because uh, of, of a bearish outlook in, in, in very broad terms. So we, we might be thinking that it's going to get steeper because longer term inflation is going to go haywire. So as, as we were talking about earlier, if everyone in the market thinks that long-term inflation is going to go haywire, then the, the long bond yield, the 10-year bond yield, is going to go up. It's going to start to rise. People are going to start to sell those bonds, which will push the yield up. Mm. Now, if, if we believe that's what's going to happen, we can use futures to express that view without actually ever buying a bond. So we can short the 10-year bond future and buy the three-year bond future. And if our view is correct, then that particular trade will make money. Mm. And, and, and we, we've got a lot of those trades running at any given time um, for, for different reasons, for different outlooks over different timeframes. And they all work together to, uh, to, to try and generate that additional return stream. And when I say additional return stream, we're not trying to make 10, 15% per annum returns. What we're trying to say is, is over the space of a year, if we can do 50 basis points in our, in our most conservative fund, then that would be a great result for us. Mm. In, our, in our high income fund, if we can do three times that, so maybe 1.5% per annum, we, we would be very, very pleased with that result. Mm. So that's, that, that's one example of what we're doing, but we have similar strategies uh, in currencies. So uh, one of our analysts is a, uh, is a trained physicist and absolutely loves just mining data uh, to the nth degree. So he looks at a range of currency pairs and he actually puts it through a machine learning program. And that machine learning program is designed to find patterns that we as mere mortal humans couldn't find. And this machine just runs data for days and days and days. And sometimes it comes up with, with relationships that we would never guess, um, but seem to work. And some, sometimes we actually put positions on based on that. There needs to be an underlying logic to it, but if it, if it finds a relationship, we will, we will do that as well in very small size. So there's, there's, there's lots of interesting stuff that you can do with data in the, in, in the huge markets that we, that we deal in. I think this is where the, the question from earlier on um, that I asked you about where equities investors, if you get it right, you do a really good job that year you find a couple great trades or companies you might make multiples of your money if we're talking about um what do you call it a bearish what do you call it bear, bear steepener a bear steepener you might you know add 150 basis points if you're lucky um and this is where the, the it reminded me of your, your beach ball analogy relative to the basketball if you start getting into derivatives of futures and that sort of stuff you can see how yeah. those trades kind of all, all shake out um Yep, they, 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 would, they, would be, they would be nuclear devices in the hands of people that didn't understand 
just how you know just how much leverage and 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 risk was involved. And you know you, you see a lot of investors sort of wading into the CFD market and, and the like, which are effectively just leverage futures um, in in a way. And without the proper knowledge and understanding of risk management, it can go pear shaped extremely quickly. Mm. Well, that, yeah, that's why a lot of CFD providers are forced to disclose how many people actually lose money <laughs> when they get a CFD account. <laughs> yeah, I would suspect it's more um, than uh, more than most people realise as well. Yeah, yeah, and that's the truth. Um, so the 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 key topic, I guess, that is on everyone's mind, and it'd be remiss of me not to talk to you about, is basically as we go into twenty twenty two people are really worried about inflation. Um, like I probably get more questions about that from our members than any other question of like a macro, um, I guess, flavor. It's if, if inflation is going to rise or keep, you know, at these levels, then what happens to my equities portfolio? Then what happens to my fixed in- interest portfolio? Like it's, it seems to be a really topical thing. Um, and it's a, it's a valid concern in my opinion. So, can you just, I guess there's, there's a few parts of this is like, what do you see? Like not asking for a specific forecast or anything like that, but just what do you see the impacts being um, on markets generally? And then how does that affect the different kind of asset classes that you monitor? Even if it's, you know, you don't actively invest in equities, but how would you expect that to impact um, companies and, and markets generally? Yep. Yep. So I'll, I'll, I'll sort of work through it in stages. Uh, overall, our inflation view is that uh, certainly stagflation is not on the horizon, um, but we think that in- inflation will probably stay at elevated levels for the next two to three years. So call it the call it the medium term. Now that's not necessarily a, a death knell for risk assets, because if you look at the data through longer time periods, rising inflation is not always a bad thing for equities or Uh, duration exposed bonds. It's not always a bad thing. If the inflation is well telegraphed and inflation expectations in the broader community are well anchored, so there's there's an expectation that inflation will reach a certain level and then effectively hold there, then it can actually be okay for risk assets overall. What we don't want to see is either a a de-anchoring of expectations, so people start to get worried about whether, whether inflation might get away from them. You know, that, that situation we talked about where, you know, prices in the grocery store are jumping by 10% and yet your wages are yet, are yet to move. I, I, I don't think we're anywhere near that stage yet. Um, but in, in, in a situation where that potentially does happen, then there's two areas you don't want to be, um, especially so, high duration bonds, but the equity analog is really high PE stocks because, Behind the PE of every single stock is a yield. If you just simply invert it and put it put one over the one over the PE, you, you get a yield. It's it's called the earnings yield, and it's a useful analog to think about when you're when you're considering, um, you know, potentially even comparing the two the two markets. And if you're in an environment where inflation is getting away from you, so if if we do come to that environment, you want to be out of long duration credit. Uh, and, and fixed income, and you want to be out of high PE stocks because they're the ones that are going to be absolutely crowned when inflation starts to entrench. Mm. And just to, just to confirm what uh, Brad's saying here, so if you've got a PE ratio of 20, if you turn that upside down, basically, it's uh, in an issue of, say, five, right? So 
Yeah. And so that's actually an interesting proxy for expected returns as well. I think some people, one of the things I taught in one of our courses ages ago is that some people use the earnings yields of like comparable companies as a, as a proxy for discount rates and you get you know, earnings yield plus or something like that. So that's, that's really interesting. So how would you, so you expect like, like obviously the richer valuations to come right back. We've seen whether it's probably not an inflation linked thing, but it's maybe more like a COVID one, uh, like an unwind type thing where a lot of these software as a service companies and technology companies have kind of been smoked as a result. Um, like, is there anything that you would kind of define as like a high, like a higher risk kind of bucket? Like anything like, are we talking like these companies that just have outrageous valuations? Is there any kind of other more granular, granular insights that you can bring to that? Uh, well, I think uh, th there are certain companies that are obviously much more exposed to interest rates uh, than others, and 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 in a high inflation environment, the, the the of course the expectation would be that interest rates will be rising to try and head that inflation off. So yeah. if 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 you're sort of considering that from yeah like a sectoral perspective, any of the companies that have that high exposure to interest rates, so we're talking utilities, we're talking property, generally speaking, um, any of those companies that, that that can carry a lot of debt. So a lot of a lot of like the airports, for example, they can they can often carry a lot of debt because of the nature of their business. But when interest rates are rising, that debt's becoming way more expensive. So that's going to lead into their profits relatively uh, relatively considerably. So there's the, there's those sectors that you probably need to be more wary of, at least in the early stages, because they would probably be where investors go first to lighten exposures if they're really worried about that uh, inflationary prospect building. Hmm. One of the things that um, we had to make a move on just a little while ago, it's maybe like 18 months ago now, was basically just kind of pulling out of some of the the more passive vehicles on the, the fixed interest side, like the duration risk was just too high. Um, the yields and the coupons just way too low to like to justify, you know, any of this any, any genuine reason why you'd keep holding them in a portfolio. So now investors are thinking, okay, well, if I don't have this standard kind of bond to stocks or risk on risk off mix, what do I look at? Like what are the, the types of, what is, what is a healthy portfolio in a rising or at least kind of consistently high inflationary environment in the medium term look like? Like at least from the, 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 the risk offside, so that kind of fixed interest piece how do you think about that? And how do you think, you know, investors can consider that part of their portfolio as we go into 2022? Yep. Yep. Well, it, it all comes down to flexibility. I think having, having, having the choices, not, not being forced to hold something because you have to, or because the index says that this is how, how it should be structured. Uh, and, I, and I think it's, it's only a relatively new concept, but being able to access uh, listed vehicles that have that active element is, is one way that you can really do it because yeah, you, you've hit the nail on the head with, uh, with, with passive fixed income. So having, ha having the flexibility uh, or the manager having the flexibility to manage those, those risks and uh, those challenges as you move through the cycle, I think is, is, is just so important. Mm. And so, um, you know, I guess in the, the times gone by, we would just look at standard like academic portfolios you might have just like they're just throwing government bonds and then they'd have their broad market index for equities. Um, what are some of the, the as, as investors looking at funds and weighing these up, I think, you know, one of the things that investors really struggle with, they can identify 
on the equity side, oh, you know, I like Telstra, I like the business, it seems to have a good strategy. But then when you try and judge a fund manager that invests in Telstra, right, that's like a different skill set, again, because you're looking at, you're judging the person who then invests in the companies. And so and something that people have trouble with is when they look at fixed interest investors or on the bond side, I think, oh, how do I know if this outfit, this, this company is doing a job? How would you go about like what kind of things would be going through your mind as you're weighing up a bond fund to invest in? Like what criteria would you be looking at in this environment? Mm, yeah, I would take a step back and I would probably turn the mirror back on myself and I would look at what, what, what do I own? And what, what, do I have any actual sort of you know, biases that are obvious at the, at the moment in my existing portfolio? I think most people can um, could probably tell a story or two about stocks or, or funds or, uh, a particular manager that they've owned for for ages that they've become accustomed to or they they've become quite close to uh, and they're not willing to uh, objectively assess whether that manager whether that strategy whether that exposure is right for their particular portfolio just because I've held it for 10 years and it's it's done pretty well for me up until now so what why would I why would I sell it so I, I would step back and say what are what are the what are the what's the environment that we're in at the moment does, does the current portfolio actually fit for purpose or do I actually need to take a step back and actually start from start from scratch even? But uh, in terms of actually looking at, at funds themselves, um, I think it, yeah, it goes back to uh, what, I was, what I was saying. So you, you want to select something that is the right fit for the, for the environment. Um, and, and I think we've, we've discussed and we're in agreement that, that in fixed income, it's active over, over passive. So that's, that's great. That's one decision. Um, but when it comes to choosing a manager, it's, 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 it's like anything, really. There's, there's only so much reading you can do without actually going to the office and knocking on their door and asking for a private meeting. Um, you just need to, as much as possible, school yourself on the major terms and then start to read through some of the material. And as those terms come up, try and put them into the, into the context and understand what, why they're using them and, and, and how they're using them and what that, what that then means and how it fits into your overall view. Mm. Um, I think this is, yeah, I think this is a, it's a, it's a really important thing, particularly for people that are like SMSF trustees and people that are like uh, administering those portfolios and thinking, well, how can I, like, how can I position myself uh, in this interest rate environment and it, it is a genuine concern amongst a lot of investors because we, you know, we're, if you think about that, let's go back to that duration example before where you know, it's 5.7 years, if interest rates do rise 1% because of a high, slightly higher inflation or consistent inflation, that, that's like a, there's a big opportunity cost there. And so if you can deflect some of that pain, why wouldn't you, right? Um, it's, a, it's a really interesting thing. I think we're going to still have this conversation long into 2022 uh, people and investors trying to position themselves for that. Um, there's one final question, which is, I think it's important because it's sweeping through equities that are, and it is um, in, in bonds as well, which is this um, environmental, social and governance, which I know is a key part of your day-to-day -day work, which is basically how do you apply the lens of ESG when you're making these investments? Do, are there any kind of rules um, based approaches that you would use to filter out companies or securities that don't meet ESG criteria? And if so, kind of how do you do that and what are you looking for? Yeah, I can, I can certainly uh, sort of walk you through it. Um, when, when we think about ESG and fixed income, the, the first thing that we found in our, in our work 
is that the, the, the governance factor is the key determinant of, of performance. Uh, a, a company right. that's well, go well governed, uh, you know, a strong board that oversees a, uh, a, a strong CEO with a good strategy um, and all of the other things that, that, that go into good governance um, around sort of board structure and, and all of those things. If all of that is looking good, um, we're pretty confident that the uh, sort of the, the ESG box can be ticked for us because uh, environmental and social uh, are important and they, they definitely factor into our process. But if the company can't get governance right, then it, it, it worries us as a bond investor because, as, as you know, it's only downside for us when, when we invest. The, the upside is very mm. much capped. Mm. But, but, but just to give you a little bit more um, uh, insight as to ESG and fixed income, there's one very specific benefit that fixed income investors get when we talk about ESG. And that is that we can actually fund projects via green bonds or sustainability bonds uh, and the like, that we know that our capital is going to specific projects, achieving specific goals that's actually even measurable, uh, you know, down to the, down to the percentage or the, or the ton of carbon, if you will, um, that, that's, that's then able to then be reported back. So our investors know that uh, for sure, their, their capital is going towards real, real improvements, real projects, and uh, and, and that, that really sets apart fixed income from, from equity investors because if you think about it, an equity investor's got a lot of sway over the company because they're part owners, and if enough of them sort of band together, they can make some pretty big decisions. So, you know, ExxonMobil, for example, they got a couple of the board members kicked off and uh, some more uh, environmentally conscious board members are now there and they're forcing some pretty specific change at one of the largest oil companies in the world. Um, as fixed income investors, you can't do that. So generally you have a, con you have a contractual relationship with the company as a bond investor. You know, we, we contract with you to lend you money, you pay us interest rate and pay us back our principal at the end. That's, that's really our relationship to the company. So we don't get the same amount of access to the CEO or the, the, the senior management. But what we can do is say that, all right, if you're gonna offer this green bond, you've got to tell us exactly how you're gonna spend the money. And we can then quantify then how you, how you go and do that. And we'll, uh, we'll, we'll judge you on that afterwards to make sure that you're doing it, uh, doing it properly and as you say you would. So that's, uh, that's certainly how we can make a difference in, in fixed income. Yeah, right. So that's, yeah, and that's, that's a really interesting example as well. I, I find that's, because sometimes in the equity side, we think, you know, is it all worth it actually at the end of the day? What are we actually doing in this, in this market if we just allocate capital in this way? does it increase like the earnings yield for the company? Does that mean that the next investor just gets a lower PE stock? And that's kind of the cynical take on it, right? So um, to have that direct exposure and to fund projects, that's pretty, that's a bit more tangible and a bit more kind of exciting and rewarding for you as well. Um, so we've covered a lot of ground, mate. We've covered basically, you know, everything from the difference between equities and credit um, analysts and um, duration. We've kind of gone to got the field guide ready and, and sorted on, on, on the entire bond market and, and fixed income generally. Um, we've talked about, you know, uh, derivatives and how you use that core and that um, overlay strategy to, to extract alpha. Uh, it's been a fascinating conversation, mate. If people want to learn more about what you're doing and what the team at Daintree are doing, where can they go to find out um, and get more of the content? Sure. The, uh, the best way to do it is our website, daintreecapital.com.au. And uh, we, we're generally publishing articles once a month or so, 
So we're always trying to put some uh, some content out there to give us give uh, our investors and potential investors some insights as to what's happening in the, the big, wide, vast bond markets. And uh, yeah, from, from there, you can find out more about our funds as well. So I think the website is the best place to start. Yeah, sure. And I'll put all links in the show notes too. There's also a newsletter that you can subscribe to. So mate, it's been a pleasure chatting to you. Thanks for joining me on the show. Thanks for having me on.